So you guys, I'm excited about this book. I'm not going to say that this is my favorite book like I always do every time we get to a new book. But this is an awesome book, and I love this book. And if you guys have never read this book, you're really in for a treat. It's, it's, an, it's a great book. It's super short, but there is so much here to kind of get our head around. And so as I always do when we start a new, a new book, I want to give us a little bit of a runway, a little bit of a, of a backstory of like what's up and who we're looking at and where he is in history and all that jazz, because I think it's important to keep us in the context, right? We, the Old Testament, it was obviously written in chronology, right? It was written when it was written, but it's not organized chrono- chronologically. Does that make sense? So we have Ezra and Nehemiah, who actually was contemporary to Haggai, specifically, well, yeah, Ezra and Nehemiah, but more specifically Ezra, right, who came back first. That's really where this book falls. Where does it land in the Bible? Back with all the minor prophets, because <laughs> he was a minor prophet. What is a minor prophet? Not that they were less than the major prophets, just that the books are tinier, that's all. And you're going to see, this is two chapters. We're going to get through this whole book in two weeks. I would encourage you guys, you know how many times I was bragging to um, Maya and to Kylie on Monday that I had read the whole book of Haggai four times already. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, because I'm so spiritual. <laughs> no. So, like I was saying, Haggai was one of the returnees of the exile in Babylon. That's who he was, right? So he was one of the guys that came back with Ezra in that initial group. And so we read in Ezra that all these people of Israel, they had been gone for 70 years. Babylon had taken them away, right? taking them away and, and kind of, they were in exile in Babylon. We just got done a little bit ago reading through the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet that was in Babylon prophesying. We know Daniel was a guy that was there. Jeremiah was still in Jerusalem saying the exact same thing to them all the time. Stop being idiots, basically, <laughs> and fix this. And they chose not to, right? So they went away. They came back though, 70 years later, They came back to Jerusalem in 538 BC. And during that time, we know there was a great deal of things going on. The people rebuilt the altar of the temple. We see that in Ezra chapter three, verse one. They began sacrificing on the the altar, and that's in verse six of the same chapter. And then in the same chapter, we actually see that they completed the foundation of the temple, the rebuilt temple in 536 BC, two years after they had arrived the foundation was laid. And if you guys remember that, it's in uh, Ezra chapter three, verse eight through 13. Do you guys remember when we went through Ezra or if you've ever read Ezra, there were people that had seen the original temple and there were people that had never seen the temple that were born in exile. And so they were coming back. And so it says that from afar off, they could hear this loud like noise, but they couldn't figure out if it was like cheering or if it was crying because there was this huge crowd. Some were crying because they knew what it used to look like. And they're like, oh man, this is not what it used to be. But there was other people that were like, whoa, the foundation's poured. Like, we're good. It wasn't poured, obviously. It was stones laid on top of themselves. Listen to me. They brought in the cement trucks. No. (laughs) Right? So the foundation had been built. So they didn't know what was going on, but that's kind of where we were. And we know that it's at this point, you guys, when things were going pretty well, that they came against opposition. Little clue into what we're going to be reading on Sunday. We're going to be reading about what? Opposition. What happens every time God is moving in your life? Opposition. You are naive. I would even say you're kind of stupid if you don't expect some level of opposition when you're walking with the Lord. 
And so often, Christians, we're like, what's going on, God? Why are Dude, it's not God. God's with you. He still gave you a thing to do. Do it. Don't worry about the opposition. Right? Also, expect it. <laughs> it's coming. Flip over with me to the book of Ezra, chapter 4. Just real quick, I want to look at this opposition because it kind of gets us into and sets us up for the book of Haggai really perfectly. Ezra chapter 4, verse 1 says this. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel at, and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of that guy. Uh, I'll try it. Esar Hadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. I want to stop for just a quick second, just to kind of clarify this. Why were these guys not really the right guys? Because Assyria took away the northern kingdom before the southern kingdom went to Babylon, right? went away to Babylon. And when Assyria was known for this, when they would take over an area, they would bring in people from another area to come in and they would basically say, here, you need to assimilate into that area. So the Northern Kingdom had become this place that was kind of like pagan worship mixed with a little bit of the worship of, God, of Yahweh. So it was this really twisted, not good form of worship. So when they're saying, hey, Southern Kingdom, hey, guys that really do worship Yahweh, let us help. We've been doing this. We've been worshiping the same God. No, they haven't. They haven't been. They've been worshiping their gods and Yahweh, right? Let's keep reading. Verse three, it says, but Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. For we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them, listen to this, made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reigns of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. We're gonna skip down to verse 17 because all the rest of that is this letter that they wrote, which we're not gonna read, but here's the result of that letter. Verse 17 of chapter four in Ezra says this, the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander and Shimshai, the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now this letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me and I made a decree and a search has been made and it has been found that this city from of old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. Who were they talking about? David, Solomon, right? Verse 22, and take care not to be slack in this matter. I'm sorry, Father, or forgive me. Uh, verse 21, therefore make a, uh, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Then when this copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before, the Rehum, before Rehum and Shimshai the scribe and their associates, they went in haste, because they're a bunch of little punks, 
to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work of the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This is the moment when it all stopped. What, what stopped? Did you guys notice that? The building of the city. Were they building the city? Nope. They're building the temple. Why did they stop building the temple? Well, we read about that in verse uh, 4. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They stopped working on the temple, which was the thing that they were called to be there to do. The thing that was told against them was not to build the city. The temple had nothing to do with that. We need to get our head around all that. So now, flip back over with me to Haggai. You guys, Haggai is where we, we're picking up in the second year of King Darius is where we're picking up. And the second year of King Darius is kind of a timestamp for us as well in a lot of ways. And we're going to talk a little bit more about timestamps. This book is full of them. But it's another thing that's interesting because if you read the book of Kings, it'll say in the time of King David, in the time of King whatever, right? Like in Samuel, different books. Why? Because Israel had a king. Notice what they're basing their time frame off of, the king of Babylon. It's kind of sad. It's just another clear evidence that like, man, these guys were in shambles, so to speak, right? They were under the influence, under the direction of another king. And that king initially had said, hey, don't build the walls. But they had just stopped building altogether because they were afraid. This guy, Haggai, though, is a super, he's probably, I don't know this for sure, but I believe he is he has the shortest amount of space and the amount of time that he did the work that God had for him. It was four months. This whole book spans a time frame of four months total. He prophesied about God's plan for his people over these four months. And here's what we're going to see. And this is one of the reasons I think that his prophecy, his time of prophetic ministry was so short, is that when he talked in the name of the Lord, the people listened. Listen, y'all, hear me. When people come into this church <laughs> and they're like, man, why do you keep talking about this one thing? Maybe because y'all ain't listening. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, I'm kind of being a little bit tongue-in-cheek here, but honestly, man, if you listen, God's like, okay, moving on. What's next, right? Typically, what did we see in the days of Jeremiah? Nobody listened. It got to the point with Jeremiah that he's like, just shut me up. I don't want to do this anymore. God, like, I just shut my mouth. But then the next very next words out of his mouth was like, but I can't. I can't because it's burning in me. I need to tell it. Right? It's burning in me, y'all. Woo! You guys, unlike the pre-exilic prophets, right? These pre-exile prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel are three that we know, right? Man, they, they just had to endure the disobedience of Judah. They had to endure the disobedience of southern kingdom. And by the way, they're not alone. We have northern kingdom prophets too, like Nahum and different guys that were like talking during that time that were like, yo, Assyria is coming. Please stop. And they didn't listen to them either. You guys, where we're going to pick up on in the very first verse, it gives us this very specific timestamp, which I'm going to tell you the date of. It's 1 September 520 B.C. The 1st of September, 520 BC. So let's read here, verse 1 through 6. We're going to start on, says this. Excuse me. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, 
on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, uh, the prophet of Haggai, <laughs> by the hand of Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. You guys, we see from the very start of this prophecy, like I said, is a very specific timestamp. This is an important factor. It's a very important factor. Why? Because I need you to hear this. There's a lot of people that are like, well, the books of prophecy are, you know, I mean, they're a little whatever out there. And there's even biblical scholars that were like against Isaiah. It's called high, um, did you guys know that? They were like, Isaiah couldn't have written half the stuff he wrote. There had to be another person that wrote Isaiah later in history that used the name Isaiah. Or maybe was named Isaiah, but we're looking and we're saying, but he's writing about history in the past. They said that. They actually believe that. There are tons of people, even within, when I say biblical scholar, I need you guys to hear this. You realize that there are many, many, many biblical professors that are atheists. You guys are aware of that? So this is, when I say biblical scholar, use that term loosely. They know the Bible because they've studied it. It doesn't mean they believe it. Here's the truth, though. With all the prophets, with this whole Bible, this is God's word. I believe it's infallible. I believe that what he wanted to write down is here, and it will not be messed with. Do we see differences between translations and different manuscripts? Yes. Do any of them take away from the deity of Christ? Not one. Not one. There is not any real issue with the word. This book, you guys, has been more highly scrutinized and looked upon than any other book in history. It is the biggest selling book, so the most people in the whole world have this book. And it is also, I need you to hear this, by many, many, many scholars, even atheist scholars will say, this is the most accurate book that exists. Even if they disagree on some things, they still say the accuracy of this entire book is amazing. It's, it's, it's completely unfathomable in the scheme of things. Why am I saying all that? And let me finish the thing with Isaiah. Whenever we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, you guys, it proved that the Isaiah that wrote Isaiah was the Isaiah that said he wrote Isaiah. Shocker! Right? Because it was dated from way before all of these things. And so the Isaiah that really wrote it, wrote it way before crucifixion, crucifixion existed, and he described it in graphic detail. He wrote it way before Jesus was on the scene, 700 years before Jesus was around. There's crazy stuff happening in God's word, if we're willing to look at it. And here's Haggai, who's saying, it was on this day that God told me these things, and it was this day that I said it. And we're going to see a second timestamp that I'm not going to bring up. We're going to bring it up next week. Right, But we see four different timestamps in here. Haggai was not playing around. He's like, this is when these things happened. And we can see that they came to fruition and God did them. And it's amazing. So, here's this regular guy, Haggai. Just a normal guy. 
not some weirdo, not some special fella, just a guy that God said, hey, say these things. I need you to hear this. This was the start in the, the post-exilic era. This, this right here was the first words that God spoke to his people. 16 straight years since, since all of that, since they had come back, you guys. 16 years of non-activity. I'm sorry, forgive me. 70 plus years, 70, 86 years of non-activity from the prophets, really, if you count the 70 years of, of being in exile, right? That, that now here they're post. 16 years, though, of them not building the, the uh, temple. They had started. They did it all. Remember, we talked about those dates. And then for 16 years, it just sat there. It didn't do anything. And so... Along comes Haggai, and he's the first guy as a prophet in the post-exilic era to say, hey, guys, this is what God's saying. This is what God wants. He spoke the words that God had given him to say. And the first thing he says, you guys, is this great question. Why do you live in your nice paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? It's a good question. He tells them their own hearts, you guys. He says, you guys think it's not time to rebuild my house. But then God gives this profound statement that I believe, I think, we all need to hear, you guys, and that is this. Consider your ways. The name of the message tonight is Consider Your Ways. It's never a bad idea to go to the Lord and say, man, Lord, show me my heart. I want to consider my ways before you. And so tonight, I just want to provide an opportunity for us, you guys, because God knew their heart. That's why he made this profound statement. Why did they say it wasn't time to build the house of the Lord? It was not because of the decree that the, that the king made. It wasn't. We looked at that. The king said, don't build the walls. Don't build the city. They weren't building the city. They were building the temple, which was the thing they were sent back to do, that God had told them to do. We read why they didn't do it, because they were afraid. And in that fear, it began to get to a point where they're like, eh, it'll sit there. No biggie. And it became less important than their own stuff. You guys, they were more concerned with their stuff and their houses and being nice and comfy while God's house laid in ruin. A couple things I want to say is, what about us? Two things I want us to consider we all here have goals in mind for ourselves, right? We should. It's kind of a good idea. Like I got a goal of eventually paying off my house or I've got a goal of getting on uh, to, an, you know, go to see Ireland is one of the goals for Grace and I that we want to do sometime in our life, right? We want to go to Israel. We want to do different things. None of those things are bad. They're not bad at all. But my question for each of us, you guys, the question I want us to go to the Lord with is this. Is that goal in line with what God desires of you? Is your, are your goals in line with what God actually wants you to do? That's the big question. In other words, what's your focus? Is your focus a better car? A nicer house? Nicer stuff to put in that bigger, nicer house? Great vacations? New skis? A new boat? Ensuring your kids only have the best? Listen, none of this stuff is wrong. I need you to hear me on this. I'm not being here being like, oh, uh, Pastor, I was planning a pretty major vacation next year. I guess I better cancel it. No, don't. My question is this, though. Where is your focus? 
Because if those things are your focus to the expense and at the expense of your relationship with God, if church is literally literally an afterthought when all that other stuff isn't on your plate, like, oh, I can't really go on vacation this week, and the skiing season's not great right now, or in the summer, you know, my, my beach house is not, uh, you know, I can probably give it a week, and I don't really want to go out because it's a pretty far trip, and all these other reasons that I have to not be at church are out of the way, well, then maybe I'll show up. It's that kind of heart that I think God is getting at with his people, where he's like, no, you're wrong. Reorient yourself. Put me first. Is there anything wrong with having a beach house? No. The only thing wrong is if you have one, invite me. <laughs> right? Nothing wrong with having a boat. Let me come out on it. Right? None of these things are wrong, but what is the focus of your heart? Are all these other things so much more important than God? And if they are, then guys, consider your ways. The second thing that I want us to consider and to think about is found in Hebrews chapter 3. Flip over there with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Because remember, God's here talking about his house. And he was literally talking about a physical building, the temple, right? And we just got done reading Exodus where we saw the physical tent, essentially, that was the precursor to the temple being built, the tabernacle. And God in the Old Testament, that's how he stayed with people. But we know in the New Testament, he tabernacles with us. He resides in us. The Holy Spirit does. If we know Jesus Christ, if we've accepted the fact that Jesus died and rose again, then we have the Holy Spirit residing in us, right? We're not just playing church. We are the church. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3 says this, you guys. It says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Listen to this. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. What's he saying? What is the author of Hebrews saying, who I believe most likely was Paul, right? What was he saying? He was like, you're the house, guys, and God is building you. Like, that's the thing. Now, think about that in light of what we just read in Haggai. Is your house being made light and ruined because you're focusing your your house on other things all the time? Do you get it? Do you see the correlation? You guys, it's really the core of the issue, isn't it? I started with the, the more kind of silly thing first. Flip back over with me to Haggai. I started with the silly thing first because I want to dig into the deeper layer. The, the top layer is just the stuff that you're putting your mind to. Like, I'm going to go on vacation, and I'm, I'm gonna, my kid's going to be in soccer every freaking week, so I won't be there the entire season. That's a problem. If more Christians just stood up to the soccer coaches and said no, guess what wouldn't happen on Sundays? Soccer. It used to not. Why? It didn't happen where I was. Do you know why? Listen, my family wasn't even Christian, y'all. But my family had enough sense to be like, no, Sunday's not the day we do this. And so the town was like, okay, we won't do it on Sunday. Somewhere along the way, that got screwed up, man. I'm not dogging out anybody likes soccer. Y'all play your soccer. And, And listen, we could just as easily have a whole crew of people that play hockey. Same thing whatever sport. 
The truth is, though, you guys, is that I want to get to the core of the issue, and that is this. What we truly value and believe will show up in what we do. Our beliefs, guys, are made evident in our actions. I'm going to say it one more time. Our, what we truly believe shows up in our actions. If God's important to you, you will be where God is. Now, God is everywhere. <laughs> so let's not... But, but God's people meet. God's people are in fellowship one with another. God wants us to be together. It doesn't mean you can't go on vacation for a week or two. It doesn't mean that you don't have a time where you're like, you know what, I'm, I'm out this week because of this, or I'm, I'm doing this thing. It doesn't mean you can't. The point is, where is your heart? If your heart is to be part of the body and be a part of what's going on, we're going to talk a lot about this on Sunday, then guys, can I just encourage you, God will use that and grow you up in it. And the thing that you value will become, to me, what I found in my life, the more I press into God, the more I value what God's doing in my life. The more that I value what God's doing in my life, the more I want to press in. It's like this hamster wheel that never ends. And it's the easiest and most amazing hamster wheel that I'll ever be on, and I don't ever want to get off. You guys, if you value and focus on you, though, if you believe that you are all that matters, it's going to show up in how you act. And I got to say this. There's way too many American Christians that live just that way. There is. I pray it's not true for us as a church. We see here in Hebrews, you guys, that we're the house of God. And as believers, our confidence and our boasting comes from our hope in Jesus and what he's doing in our lives. That's it, period. Not in anything we're doing, right? Showing up to church on a Wednesday night, you guys are super special because you're more holy than just the people that come on Sunday. No, you're not. You're not, right? No, it's just another opportunity, though, for us to come together and hang out together, to come together and hear his word, to come together and like be put out of our comfort zone because some, who knows what we're going to do week to week, right? I kind of love that about Wednesday night. It's special. And to be honest with you guys, it's seeping into Sunday mornings, and I love that too. Because I want to be a church that says, man, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do? And then do our best to follow it. I love it. But you guys, we place our hope in him, and that's what Hebrews is saying. Man, we're, we're putting our hope and trust in him to transform and change us. If you believe that Jesus is your one and only hope, your life is going to begin to reflect that. It's just a fact. So I want each of us tonight to ask the Holy Spirit to examine, to consider our ways, examine our motives, examine our beliefs. Truly examine them. Put everything before the Lord and be like, God, what is this? What value does this hold in my life? Is this useful for your kingdom? Or is it just fun? And if it's just fun, am I allowed to have that fun? And can I just encourage you? I've asked that question very often, and there are plenty of times that God's like, yeah, you're totally allowed. I love my Xbox. I love disappearing into some stupid Skyrim world, killing vampires. It's amazing. There's nothing wrong with that, but guess what? I want to have a heart that if God does say, not anymore, that it goes away. Do you get it? I want to value God over everything, even stupid, silly things like an Xbox. God makes it clear, too, in this passage, the reason for the futile life that they were living. Because the reality is, you guys, if we're living for ourselves, our life is futile. I mean, it really is. And Christian, your life is even more futile because you are aware of what good and true and real meaningful life 
should look like in Christ. I don't blame the world for being at the bar and getting drunk. They don't know any better. And having been drunk myself many times, I can tell you that if I had no other hope in my life, it's a couple moments of freedom and fun. When I say freedom, I'm talking about freedom because you're so inebriated, you don't know that you're being a moron. So it's fake freedom that you pay for dearly the next day when you have a massive headache, right? But do you get my point? But Christians, we know what true freedom is. We know we have freedom in Christ. We know that this is not a rule book. It's a book that says, live this way and watch your, watch your life explode in these meaningful, amazing ways, right? I don't want to murder, not because it's a rule in here, but because I don't want to. It's not going to help anybody come to Jesus, right? I don't want to lie to you guys. Why? Not just because I might get caught in the lie, not because it's a rule, because I don't want to see the name of the Lord brought down at all in my life because I'm making stupid choices. Do you see the difference? We have a freedom that people don't understand because they're like, oh, this is just a bunch of rules. There are rules. And every rule that was ever written by God was for your good. It was for your good and it was for the good of society, by the way. Because if we got a bunch of murderers, that ain't good for anybody. It's not good for the murderers and it's not good for the people that are murdered. What's it say here in here about their futile living? They were sowing much and harvesting little. They were eating but never having enough. It's like whenever you have a whole cake or a whole cheesecake, in my case, and you eat half of it, and the only reason you quit isn't because you have enough. It's because you're like, I just ate 3,000 calories. (laughs) They eat, but they never have enough. They drink, but they're always thirsty. They clothe themselves, but they can't get warm. They're earning wages, and they're putting it into bags with holes. And why was all this happening? God's saying why. Because I want to get your attention. Because I'm trying to get your attention. He wanted them to stop striving after their own comfort and well-being and instead trust him and serve him and watch him do something amazing instead of striving so hard to get nowhere. Oh, you guys, we need to hear this. There is nothing new under the sun. This is the definition of the American Christian. This is the definition of America. If you don't believe me, look at the inflation. I'm not kidding. Do you not think that God is capable of using even these things in this country to get our attention? And church, can I just say the American church is one of the biggest problems because we've sold this bill of goods all around the world of the health and wealth gospel that says like, man, God just wants you to be rich and healthy and why I have all this stuff. It's not biblical. It's not here. God wants you to serve him. God might ask you to die for him. That's right. Jesus didn't say anywhere in any of the gospels. Here's what God wants for you. For you to live in total comfort and ease and have everything you ever wanted. No, what does he say? He's like, dude, count the costs. Know what you're signing up for. I don't even have a place to lay my head, dude. You're not going to have a nice dorm room. You're going to have the outside and a rock if you follow me. You guys, there's nothing new under the sun. I believe that there are too many American Christians, really, that need to consider their ways. Christians here, I think, 
we need to consider our ways. I'm thankful, you guys, that that is not the definition of our church. If it was, I would, I don't know what I'd do. I'd be disgusted. But I think there's always room for us to grow. So I want to just make that clear to you guys so you don't feel like you're getting a beat down. I don't see it in our church. I don't ever want to see it in our church. How do we not see it in our church? Consider our ways. (laughs) Every day, right? You guys, there are plenty of people that are never satisfied. They never seem to be able to get ahead even though they're trying so hard. And this quite possibly is true even of people that are listening to me right now. And again, the question becomes, is it because your real motive and direction is all about you? I've known so many people that are like, man, I work all this overtime. I never get to see my kids. I never get to do that. I never get to do that. I never get to do that. Man, it just seems like everything keeps breaking in my house. (laughs) Could it be maybe? Could it just be maybe that God's trying to get your attention to be like, stop. Love me. Love your family. I will take care of you. Verse 7 says this. By the way, I just want to clarify If everyone here has stuff broken in their house, it's not because God's always trying to get your attention. Sometimes things just break. You get my point, right? We're all on the same page here. I don't want anybody to be like, you're a jerk and I don't like you. But Steve, how many times have I heard it? No, I'm kidding. Uh, Verse seven. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it. And that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have, been, have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. You guys, God has a singular desire for his children. He always has, and he always will. And here's what his desire is, that you would live under his direction and bring him glory. That's it. That's his whole point in life. That's why he created us, was to bring him glory. And that makes him sound a little crazy, doesn't it? Like, you're like, man, do you not feel like you're, you know healthy enough on your own. Do you realize he didn't have to create us? He did it because he loved us. He did it because he wanted to be in relationship with us. So do we need to give him glory for him to be glorified? No, he is absolute glory on his own. But he wants us to give him glory because, man, in our lives, if we're walking in obedience to him and walking, again, there's that sense of rules, but if we're walking in that, guys, we are walking in more freedom here on this earth than any other human being. But on top of that, his kingdom is being glorified. His kingdom is given an opportunity to grow that he could do in any other way, but he chooses to do it in relationship with us, which is awesome. The God, our creator, chooses to reach down and be like, I want to hang out with you. That's awesome. It's awesome. Again, it's a hamster wheel. I never want to get off. I want to stay on it and be like, God, you're awesome. And I'm never going to catch up to you, but I'm never going to stop trying to catch up to you because what's happening behind me is blessing after blessing after blessing of learning and growing and becoming more in the image that you created me to be. And I, I have this thing to even look forward to beyond that, which is the hope that I'm going to, I'm going to stand before Jesus and I'm going to be made new. 
and my mind is going to be made new in heaven. Man, we have so much to look forward to. And our lives can be so free. And yet we sell it for the shackles of stupidity and stuff and chasing after things of this world. And we're all guilty of it, you guys. I am just as guilty. You guys, he makes it clear through Haggai, God even sent a famine to them to get their attention. He's like, man, what little you bring home, I like, I blow it away. Again, do you not think God can use our economy? He is, I think. Do you not think God can use situations in your life to get your attention? He does. Because why? Those that he loves, he chastens. Sometimes the chastening isn't fun. Well, I would say (laughs) never is the chastening fun. But it's always beneficial if you listen. He loves you so much that if you don't listen, it's just going to get harder for you because he loves you, not because he wants to do the hard thing. What parent, any of you that are parents, right? We all know nobody wants to discipline your child. We do it because we love you, though, because we're like, man, if if you keep acting like a hooligan, you're going to end up in jail. You need some rules here, right? And we all have that one kid that, at least I did anyway, (laughs) That was just a total hole again. And man, you'd, you'd, you'd correct him and he would be like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that, right? And he would just keep going and going and going. And so the punishment had to get worse and worse and worse and worse to the point that he basically spent his entire high school career in grounding, right? He was, which sucked for all of us. <laughs> He'd come out of grounding and we're like, please, please, one week, just give us a week. Oh, Lord. He grew out of that too, thank God. You guys, consider our ways, right? We need to consider our ways. I got to say this. When I've considered my ways, when I've really looked at my life and allowed God to do the thing that he wanted to do, it's only ever been blessing. It really has. When I stopped and I was like, man, Lord, What's going on here? Like things don't seem, I don't really hear you speaking to my heart anymore. Lord, I feel like I'm just kind of chasing after these things and I have such a desire that I'm feeling jealous because they, that person got a Tesla and I can't afford one or just stupid stuff that creeps up into our hearts, you guys. It's those moments that I feel like it's great to go back to God and be like, why am I not content, Lord? What's going on in me? And in those moments, there's always been the blessing. And you know what the blessing was? Contentment, first and foremost. And contentment to look around and say, man, Lord, look at what you've given me. And all this could burn up in two milliseconds. Man, God, thanks for giving it to me. For however long I have it, I appreciate this. I can trust God in our, we can trust God, guys, in our life direction, in our financial decisions, in our desires, in our goals. We can give it all to God. And I promise he is going to bless us with contentment. And I believe he pours out blessings upon us. There are things that have happened in my life that I can explain in no other way other than the fact that God just Poured out a blessing, period, end of story. And sometimes that stuff's financial, but most of the time, for me, it's not. It's something that happens in here that I needed way more than I needed that thing or that money or that whatever. Man, God is so faithful to us, you guys. Verse 12. Finishing up the chapter. It says, then Zerubbabel, 
the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, listen to this, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. They stood in awe of God. Verse 13, then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. That's an awesome thing to hear. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. We're going to talk more about that timestamp next week. But you guys, this is the hope for all of God's people. They heard a rebuke. They heard a challenge. And then they obeyed. They considered their ways, you guys. Man, if we as a church are just like that, that's awesome. I pray that that is who we are. That whenever God comes and says something hard to us, like he did tonight to us, I believe this is a message for us, that we would take it to him, listen to what he has to say, and then reorient ourselves to the direction he has for us to go instead of continuing to walk the way we're walking. You're never going to fail in that. You're never, <laughs> you're never going to lose in going that direction. I'll say it that way. You guys, they got to the work. The work that had been sitting undone for 16 straight years. They stopped listening to the voice of men and making excuses. And instead, they began listening to the voice of God who had told them already, rebuild the temple. That was their initial mandate, rebuild the temple. They came back to do what? Rebuild the temple. They stopped because they were afraid and they used as an excuse the call to not rebuild the city, which they were not doing anyway. Because I was just having a great conversation this week with someone that was saying, man, I don't know. I, I, like, I'm constantly asking God, like, what am I called to do? What am I supposed to do? Like, I don't know what that is. And he was trying to figure it out, you know, and they were, he was trying to be obedient and follow God and what God had for him to do. And guys, I think that's not a bad question. And we can all find ourselves there from time to time. And I've seen it in my own life. God, what do you want me to do? But can I just encourage you? There's two things I think that happen when we keep asking that question. One is healthy and one is super unhealthy. And we see this one that's super unhealthy happening here in the scripture. And here's what it is. Sometimes as we continue to ask the question and we don't get an answer, we get complacent and lazy and forget the one thing that God had already told us. Does that make sense? The last time God spoke to you, even if he hasn't spoken to you since, guess what you should be doing? The last thing God told you. <laughs> Don't stop, right? Don't stop. You guys, too often people get complacent and lazy. They give up even asking God what the point is. They're like, man, whatever. And this is one of the most unhealthy things you can ever do. Do you want to know why I think we have this movement in the church of deconstruction? You guys know what I'm talking about? People that are like, oh, I don't even know if God's real. Do you know why? Because they, they've long lost, long before that, they lost track of the fact that God has called us to some pretty specific things that every Christian is called to. And that is what? To go out into the world, tell people about Jesus and live your life for him. You want to know what your call of the Lord is? You want to know what the call for your life is, Christian? Right there. That's it. Jesus told you. That never goes away. It's a non-negotiable. 
If you stop doing that one thing, it's not a very far pitch to get to the place that you don't even believe in God anymore because you aren't doing anything God told you to do to begin with. And the enemy can just get involved and you get complacent and you stop trying to say, man, Lord, you're the one in charge of my life. God, you're my Lord. We can't even use the word Lord without truly, we don't understand what Lord means if we're not letting him do be our Lord. Lord means master, boss. He's the one that tells you what to do. So when you go in the morning, you're like, Lord, what do you have for me today? You're saying, master, what things do you have for me to do today? If he doesn't give you a clear answer, guess what you do? You do the thing, the last thing he told you, go out into the world tell everybody about him, and live your life for him. That's it. Other times, and I've known plenty of people that are like this, they stay in this state of questioning, which isn't a bad thing. But here's the one thing about continuing to ask the question every day, every day, every day, and not feeling you know, like you know the answer, is that we lose our contentment in the thing that God called us to before. So it's not bad to ask a question. What is bad is to be looking forward so much and wanting God to give you a new thing that you end up not doing the thing that God already called you to. They would have been right. They chose the first, right? The people, the the returnees chose the first one. They're like, I just forget it all. It doesn't matter. We're just going to worry about us. That's totally wrong. It's the worst thing you can do. But even if they had chosen the second thing, which would have been a step up, it still would have been the wrong thing, which was, well, I mean, I don't know. Am I supposed to build the temple? Like, when are we going to get permission to build the temple again? What's this? And what, what does this mean when he said not to build the walls? Does that mean the temple too? And that question would have been a better question than just not doing anything. But it's still a bad question because what was the last thing God told him? Build the stinking temple. <laughs> build the temple. Don't stop building the temple until the temple's built. Guys. Don't be discontent with the thing God's called you to. I worked the job when I first moved here, even though I had a call to be a full-time pastor. I knew that that was a call in my life. We moved here for that purpose. That was the purpose. It didn't pay the bills. And so I went and got a job, a job that I, I, I honestly, I love the people in the job, but it wasn't my favorite job in the world. I sat at a computer all day and managed studies for a medical company. It wasn't the most fun in the world, right? I learned a lot about things that you don't want to know. They're gross. But anyway, but the reality is, you guys, I did that. But, why, but here's the thing. I still didn't forget the first call that God had in my life. And yes, I did question, Lord, what, what's going on here? Like I, We moved halfway across the country from Idaho to here for this? Really? And that's not a bad question. God's not up there being like, I can't believe you're questioning me. No, he, want, he says, man, come to me, continue to ask, continue to seek, continue to knock, keep asking. But I didn't forget the first thing he did. And you know what I did in light of that? As I showed up to church and I did every opportunity I could, I led a Bible study and I tried to grow in, my, in the task that God put before me so that when the time came for God to be like, quit your job and do this full time, and we were able to do that, I was ready. Not because I did anything but because God provided opportunity and I took the opportunities that God provided to me, even though they didn't look like I thought they were going to look at first. Guys, we need to be content with where God has us right now. Whatever that is, a job that you're in that you hate, a thing that you're doing that you're like, man, I don't think this is exactly what God has for us. Can you just learn contentment where you are while at the same time taking every opportunity you have in the thing that God is calling you to? And when he called you and says, change, 
pivot, do it right then and there. Do it, trust him. Even if you're like, this is going to hurt financially, do it. God is not going to let you out in the lurch, I promise. I believe he's that faithful. So, we have about 10 minutes. I'd like to take five minutes of that 10 and consider our ways. I want each of us, just on our own, this, you know, uh, we, sometimes we get together in groups, sometimes we do different things. I just kind of want you to, and if you need to get away from somebody else because it's weird to you and you don't want to pray out loud, whatever, you know, whatever that is, you don't have to pray out loud, by the way. But if you want to, or if you want to get up and walk around, that's what I like to do when I pray. I want you to ask this question of God. Where is your focus and direction? Ask God, what's, where's my focus, God? What direction am I going? Am I focusing and directing my whole life towards myself? Or am I focusing my whole life on you? And let him get down into the minutia of that. Because maybe, if you're like most people, man, you might be giving God two or three or four things, and there might be two or three or four that you're not. Let him show you that stuff. Next question is this. Has God called you to something? Are you doing it? Or have you grown, grown lazy and complacent? And like I said before, God's called all of us to share the gift of eternal life with everyone around us. That's a non-negotiable. But is there any other thing that God's called you to that you're like, man, I don't know, Lord, I don't know. Maybe I'm just kind of getting lazy in that or I'm not looking forward to the opportunities that you have available to me in that even though I can't do it the way I know you maybe want me to down the road. Does that make sense? Spend five minutes and just pray and then I'll come up and I'll close this out. I'm praying now, Lord God, that you would open our eyes to see the direction you have for us to take. Lord, the way that you want us to go in our lives, Lord. I pray, Father, that you've shown each of us something tonight, God. And Father, I pray if, if you didn't, Lord, or if... Lord, more often than not, in my case, Lord, you know it's so often it's just that I'm not, I'm not hearing it clearly. God, I pray that we'd be a people that would be willing to sit before you and wait for an answer. God, so often five minutes just isn't enough. And so, God, I pray, Father, that you would give us space even over the Thanksgiving weekend, to just come before you and ask a serious question, God, to to just continue this conversation with you, to ask you, Lord, man, what direction do you have for us to go and what things are in line with the direction you want us to go and what things in our lives are not, God? Lord, finally, I do pray, Father, that if there's anyone here that you've called to do something, Lord, that they're just not doing, Lord, would you give them the courage to step out Father, would you help them to see the thing, Lord, that you have for them in the direction uh, that you want them to take to get where you have them to be, God. And Father, for those many of us, God, that are just, we're doing the thing that we're called to do already, God, and we are in the midst of the thing, Lord, that, that is happening already, Lord, I pray, God, would you give us a contentment with where you have us, and yet at the same time, Lord, to never 
just get grow complacent even in that, Lord, and not uh, continue to seek your face and wonder, Lord, what do you have for us now? Is it something new? Is it something different? Be with us, God. Holy Spirit, grow this body of believers, not in size or number. No, Lord, we want to grow in depth and knowledge. We want to be a people, Father, that are a cleaner, clearer image of you, Jesus, today than we were yesterday. God, we want to be a people that are like the church of Acts, God, just being crazy for you, Lord, living crazy, God, for you. Giving our lives for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunities you give us while we're breathing air here on this earth, Lord, to, to glorify you and to, to make your, your name known. Pray for each one of us, Lord, that we would be diligently seeking to share all that you've done for us, Jesus, to our friends, our family, our co-workers, God, our schoolmates. God, that we would never fall in the trap of assuming that just because somebody shows up to church that they actually know who you are, Jesus. I pray, Father, that we would be a people that never want anything more than to see your team grow and grow and grow and grow and grow, God. Move in us, I pray. As we come into Thanksgiving tomorrow, Father, would you fill our hearts with all the gratitude and all the things, Lord, that you have provided for us, Father, and that our focus tomorrow, God, would as much be on, uh, as much as it is on turkey and pumpkin pie and football, God, that would, it would more uh, be the focus, Lord, God, would, would be just on how much you've provided and given to us, God, and the ways, Lord, that you've poured out your blessings upon us. Help us, Father, to be and to use our lives, Lord, as an opportunity to focus this holiday, which is meant for you, God, back on you. Have your way in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Awaken Great Bay in Dover, New Hampshire. We're so glad you found us. If you want to learn more about our church or need prayer for something in your life, connect with us at awakengreatbay.com.